our mission, we want, we're helping people find and follow Jesus. We want every person to know about King Jesus and what he's done for us in our place and then give your life to him and live your life for Jesus. That's the very meaning of life. So that's what this church is about. Never, anybody ever ask you, hey, I know you're at church on Sunday. What's that place about? It's about helping people find and follow Jesus. So we're going to continue in our series. We started this back in January. We've been calling this How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And how he does that is through the imputed righteousness of Christ. The Bible teaches that, that we are spiritually bankrupt, all of us. Like there's nothing good in us, but yet when we see the beauty of the Savior and we turn from our sins, we, we place our faith in him and what he did on that cross in our place and how he rose from the grave, his righteousness is imputed to our spiritually bankrupt account. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so with that, turn to Romans chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 11 through 14 this morning. A sermon I'm calling, The Time Is Now. As I was preparing this message, I was really chewing on this and thinking this over. And it occurred to me, you know, if I was to pull you before this, this service started, if I had you line up before you ever walked in and just asked you one question, said, hey, what's your favorite verse in the book of Romans? I bet we'd have a lot of answers, a lot of the similar answers. I think some people would point to Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, which says, we have all sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning we're all sinners, every single one of us. We're all messed up and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. That, that'd be a good one to point to. Or maybe Romans 5, 8. Romans 5.8 says, yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that we got cleaned up and came to him. No, we were messed up and he was on the cross dying for us. Or maybe you'd say Romans 8.1. Beautiful verse. It says, now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning there's no damning punishment. We're not going to be punished for all the awful, rotten things we've done in our life. We've been forgiven. Jesus paid for it. Or maybe Romans 8, 28, you, say, you, you would point to that because that says, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So many verses in just chapter 8 alone. But I'm pointing this out because I don't think any of us would point to a verse in, verse, in chapters 13, 14, 15, or 16. Right? You, as I was saying that, you probably had a verse in your head. Well, this is mine. This is what I would point to. How come it wasn't chapters 13, 14, 15, or 16? You want to know my answer to, to, to that why? It's hard, yeah. But also because we don't like to do what we're told to do. We like to learn the Bible, but we don't like to do the Bible, right? Well, in the closing chapters of Romans, this is the application chapters. Where Paul is telling us this is what you need to be doing. What Paul is saying is, if you understand the first three quarters of the book of Romans, it's time to get busy doing the last quarter of the book of Romans. With that, let's read our text for this morning. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
to gratify its desires. You know, when I read that text, when I read what Paul has written right there in those verses, I sense and I read a a, a sense of urgency. The Apostle Paul has told us some amazing truths in in the first 11 chapters of this book. And then this is what I'm hearing in, in chapter 13. He's saying, this is so important. Time is of the essence. Get busy doing the things that you're called to do for the kingdom of God. You know, I've had people ask me, Pastor John, what's the rush? What's the rush? Why do you always seem to be pushing this so hard? Why are you such in a hurry? We have nothing but time. Well, here's the reason. Because every day we have people in our town that we are charged to take the gospel to that are dying and going to hell not knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior. And those people that we love, that we rub shoulders with, that, that we spend time at the grocery store and on different events on the, on the soccer field or something, these people we work with that we love and know, they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. That's what the rush is about. And to this, Paul would say, the hour has come for you to wake from the dead. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What if we change that just a scotch? What if we made that more personal and put our names in there? Would that change our attitudes about this? What if Paul said, the hour's come for John? The hour's come for Amy? The hour has has come for for Greg? For for Laura? To wake? The hour has come for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Do you think if we start thinking this more personal and applying it to ourselves, this will change our our life's attitude, how we approach what the Apostle Paul is commanding us to do in Scripture? With that, let's read 13 verse 11 again. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Remember, he's writing to believers. Verse 12 And the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Here's my first principle for us this morning. Principle number one. Time is of the essence. You know, often, far too often, early mornings, I come down our staircase. At the bottom of our stairs are our kids' bedrooms. And it's early in the morning. I'll walk in and I'll throw open the door and I'll turn on the light and I'll say, Get up! You know what they do? They grab the comforter and they pull it over their head. They're trying to shade their eyes from their light because they don't want to get up, right? That's what they typically do. It's time to go to school or it's time to go to one of a dozen different sporting events or it's time to do work around the house. Time is of the essence. We are burning daylight. It's time to get up and do the things that we're supposed to do. That's what Paul is saying here. My grandfather, when he was alive, he had about 12 sayings, and he said these same sayings over and over and over again. One of them was, shoot Luke or drop your musket. I know most of you are like, what? All 12 meant the same thing. They all meant hurry up. That's what that means. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hurry up. Why? Because salvation is nearer nearer us today than when we first believe. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Did you know that Jesus is coming back? Did you know that? There was a day when he left, and today we are one day closer than we've ever been in the history time to the day when Jesus comes back. And tomorrow, we will be one day closer again, and this will continue day after day until there are no more days. 
And so the time for us to act is now. No more time for sleeping. No more time to hit the snooze bar. Just one more time. The time is to wake. This is a spiritual command from the pages of the Bible. If you understand Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, no more wiping sleep from your eyes. No more trying to undo what you did last night. Time is of the essence. Believers are commanded to do something with their lives. What are we to be doing? I think the Apostle Paul is commanding us to look at our priorities. Examine the things that we do in life. What is important to us? That's what we are told to do. Call to see what you're doing with your life. How are you spending your time? What are you doing with the time that God has given you? This is not time for slumbering and slumbering around the house and trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing, believers. Because verse 11, Paul said, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. There are three dimensions to salvation. Okay? Past, present, and future. Your past salvation, that's what happened when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What happened is you recognize it, that you're a sinner. I recognize I am a sinner and that our sin separates us from God. And there's no amount of being good or no amount of religious activity that will ever get us to God. That's why God had to come. And God went to a cross And God paid for my sins. He paid for your sins on a cross in our place. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And when you place faith in that and that alone, nothing could be added to that. In a moment you are saved. Paul called it justification earlier in this book. That's your your past past, uh, salvation. And then there's your present salvation. Okay, Your present salvation is how God is keeping you saved. You're not saved because you're a good person, because you're not. I'm not. We're not saved because we go to church, or we give money, or we do this, or the other thing. No, God is continually forgiving our sins and my sins so that there's nothing against us when we stand in judgment. And did you know that Jesus is making intercessions on our behalf right now as we speak? But then there's also a future aspect of salvation. If we were to back up in Romans, and we turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 30... Paul has said that that God has predestined us, he's called us, he's justified us, and he's glorified us. Okay? All those are in the past tense. There's going to become this moment in the future where we receive our glorified bodies, and then we're going to have those bodies for all eternity. Well, I'm looking in this crowd here, and I see a bunch of unglorified bodies. What's the deal? Well, you see, God is so sure about something that's going to happen in the future that he can actually talk about it in the past tense. And guess what? The day we're one day closer to the day when that will actually happen. If you don't know this, there is an event that's coming. It's coming sometime in the future. It's called the rapture of the church. And this is where God is going to take all the believers off this earth and we'll be with him for all eternity. And then in like less than a moment from when that happens, we will receive our glorified bodies. And today we're one day closer to when that's actually going to happen. And so that promise from God should give us a sense of urgency like now. To tell people about Jesus now. Paul is making a reference to the rapture of the church. And then also the, the second coming of Jesus and where Jesus is going to judge the earth. And if you don't know, it's going to be a real bad day for anybody not on Team Jesus on that day. 
On that day when Jesus judges the earth, all the ungodly will be destroyed and damned forever. And sometime later, thrown into the lake of fire where there they will burn for eternity, day and night, forever and ever. That's what Revelation says. And today, we were one day closer to that happening. Paul is saying, get up. Tell people about Jesus. One of my favorite movies of all times it came out in 1986. It was a movie called Stand By Me. Anybody ever seen that movie? When that movie came out, I was the exact same age as those boys. The story goes, there's four boys that are about to go into junior high. And this was the, the weekend I went and saw that movie in the theater, I was the exact same age. And so there's four boys, it's, it's like in the late 50s, early 60s, something like that, and they're in rural Oregon. And they find that, that another boy about their age has been hit by a train, he's somewhere out in the woods, and so they want to go out and find the body of Ray Brower. And so they lie to their parents and they go spend the night out in the woods. Just these four boys are the best of friends. There's all these, they dodge a train. There's all these things. They eventually find the body and, and they, they come back to town. Well, one of the boys, his name is Christopher. He's kind of the bad kid in town. He was, they said, said he'll never mount to anything. Well, he made it. He, he made his life something. He becomes a lawyer. And then Richard Dreyfus plays the voiceover of one of the other boys. And, and it says that Christopher, you know, being a peacemaker, he's in a diner as an adult. And two guys got into a fight. He tried to break up the fight. And somebody stabbed him in the heart. And in the movie, you see Christopher's character just fade away, since letting you know he died. And then Richard Dreyfus, he, he says this, quote, At some point in your childhood, you and your friends went outside to play for the last time and nobody knew it. Hear me on this church. I'm telling you now. There will come a day when it's the last day that we have an opportunity to tell anybody about Jesus. And there will be no more days. I don't know what day that is. You don't know what day that is. Only the Father knows what that day is. But I think that's exactly what Paul is telling us in chapter 13. The time is now. Jesus has gone to heaven, and there's going to come a day where he's going to come back. Just after the, uh, um, the resurrection, there was the, Jesus died on the cross, buried in a tomb. Three days, he comes back from the dead. He's with the disciples for 40 days, teaching them, telling them that the essence, the time is now. And then he is raptured back to heaven. And this is what it says. The disciples are standing there just looking at it. They can't believe what they just saw. Acts chapter 10, 1, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up uh, from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him going to heaven. They're saying, why are you guys standing around? Why are you standing around just looking at heaven? Go tell people about Jesus. Why? Because he's going to come back. He's coming back. And the time of period that, that we're in right now, it's often referred to as the church age. And during the church age, the church's primary responsibility, the number one job of the church is to share the gospel. It's to tell people, share the gospel with people who don't know so that they come to know. And there will come a day when the church is raptured off the face of the earth and our time's over. There'll be no more time to tell people about Jesus. If you like a basketball illustration, we're on the shot clock right now. If you like a football illustration, the game clock is running right now. To all the parents in the room, how many times have you left the house, and before you left the house, you told your kids, do this one thing? 
Do this one thing and I'm coming back. And if I come back and you don't do that one thing, there's going to be big trouble. And then what happens? You come back and they didn't do that one thing, right? And you ask them, why didn't you do that one thing? And they say, well, my, my brother, my sister, they, they refused to help me, so I didn't do that one thing. They'll say, oh, there's this other thing I really want to do. It was so much more important than that one thing you told me to do. And our parental heads just explode right off our shoulders, right? Well, what's going what's to be your excuse when the king of the universe, his name is Jesus, when he comes back? I was too busy at work. I, I was really enjoying my hobbies, Jesus. I just didn't have time to go tell people about you. Uh, my work, it just it kept me tied up, right? We're going to give uh, excuses of X, Y, and Z. I don't think any of those excuses are going to amount to a hill of beans, right? When Jesus comes back. What's going to happen to believers after we're raptured? That's a good question. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, there's going to come a time where you're going to stand before Jesus, I'm going to stand before Jesus, and we're going to be evaluated of how well of a Christian life we did, or maybe even possibly punished for the evil we've done. It, it, we're, that's what he says. And you're thinking, wait a minute, you mean Christians can do evil? Well, read the text. He says, each one of you may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. The body, that's the church body. That tells us that there are Christians that can do evil in the church body, right? This call from Paul should compel us to get busy with the gospel. To live our lives in the light of the gospel, not in the darkness that this world has to offer. One thing I, I just love about the Bible, when I first got saved, I had no idea about this, but the prophecy that's in the Bible. Did you know this is the only book in the history of the world that has prophecy that, that, that is, comes to, to, to happen with pinpoint precision? There's other books that claim they have prophecy, but really they're more like a fortune cookie from a Chinese food restaurant. They're really generic. But the Bible says, this is how Nineveh will be destroyed. This is how Assyria will be destroyed. This is how Samaria will be destroyed. And then it all happened exactly the way God said it would happen hundreds, if not thousands of years before. And then there's prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And if you, if you add them all up, and do the math on what the chances that one person, his name's Jesus, could fulfill all those prophecies. The chances are less than zero. And yet it happened exactly the way God said it would happen. Well, then what's the next event? And, and, and what I, when I read the Bible and I study this, what is the next prophesied event that's supposed to happen in the Bible? I, can, I think it's the rapture of the church. Where Jesus comes and he takes away his bride. And then there's, so what I'm saying is, there's nothing stopping that from happening like tonight. Can it happen tonight? It can. I have no idea if it will. Maybe it will. Maybe it's the next night. I don't know when, but I do know it's coming. And this day is going to be amazing for believers, but that should give us a sense of urgency with our evangelism like now. And I really believe this is the key to living the Christian life to its fullest, is, is living a life that's transparent, sharing the gospel with people that need to hear this life-changing, eternity-altering news. 
Paul says in verse 12 that this urgency is compelling because the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Paul said the night is almost gone. Well, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. It's really almost gone now, right? It's like the, the last call has been made. The, the lights are getting turned on. We're, we're being kicked out. You got to go, do something with the time we have left. And again, some people have accused me of taking this too seriously. People have said, Pastor John, you major on evangelism too much. People said, you know, you look tired. You should really slow down. But I read the words of Jesus, and I read the words of Paul. Is there any other way we should live our life? If anything, I feel guilty if I, if I take time off. We have to take time off so we can keep going, but I feel guilty. Let me ask you this question. You know, today is Sunday, and let's say somehow you knew that the rapture was happening, let's say Tuesday at noon. God himself sent you an email. Uh, you got a, an iPhone invite on your, on your phone. says, Jesus returns Tuesday at noon. That means roughly you've got 48 hours, and I see the clock 14 minutes. How would you live those last hours? What would you do? I'm pretty sure the washing machine wouldn't get running during that last 40 hours, right? The floor is not going to get mopped. <laughs> that project at work, it's going to go left undone, Right? I don't know about you. I'd be going up and down the street like a maniac trying to tell somebody about Jesus. That guy that's on the corner up in Billings, I think it's 24th and Central, he doesn't look like such a, such a nut job now, does he? When you really put it in light of what Paul is saying. But Paul wants us to know that the era we're in right now, it's going to come to an end. And this era that we live in is called, again, the church age. This is where we're to tell unbelievers about Jesus. We're to tell people about Jesus, but can we agree that this era is marked by sin? I don't think I have to try very hard to convince you that the era that we live in now, it's really dark, it's, it's sinful. But this era is about to end. And if you think this one's bad, the next one's going to be way worse. When, when, when God removes believers, and God is going to remove believers by removing His Holy Spirit because God has promised to give us the Holy Spirit and never remove the Holy Spirit. So in order to remove the Holy Spirit from the earth, he has to take believers. And that's called the rapture. And again, picture as bad as this earth is now with not a single believer. And without the Holy Spirit restraining evil on this earth. I can hardly imagine, but Paul explains this to us in 2 Thessalonians. Read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way. Did you know there's people that are trying to deceive you, saying this isn't going to happen? No, this is going to happen. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This is talking about Antichrist. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when, I, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So when Paul was in Thessalonica, he was teaching them, this is going to happen. Verse 6, and you know what restrains him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains, restrains it will do so until he has gone out of the way. Talking about the removal of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. 
And the, and the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Read Revelation 19. That, that's Revelation 19 stuff right there. And bring nothing to uh, by the appearance of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power in false signs and wonder, and with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be, so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned so they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a terrible time. We don't want to experience this. We don't want anybody to experience this. And today we are one day closer to when that will happen. And this is going to continue to happen until that day comes. There was a day when Jesus was having a, a, a debate with the religious leaders and they came to him and they said, hey, show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus said, hey, you can look at the clouds and you know when it's about to rain, but you don't know the signs of the time. Church, hear me on this. This is not the time to squabble over silly issues. This is not the time to squabble over Robert's rules of order or how the order of the church service should go. People are dying and going to hell, not understanding the gospel. And God has charged the church to preach the gospel. The time is for us to wake up. That's what Paul said in verse 11. That it's time for us to understand the urgency of the hour that we live in. It's time to put our priorities in check and, and, and share Jesus with people that don't know. Does anybody know the story of Rip Van Winkle? Anybody remember that story? I think most of us know the gist of the story. Guy goes out, falls asleep, wakes up 20 years later. Well, let me give you a little more detail. He was a Dutch-American farmer, and he's a young man. He has a wife and two kids. And he works his farm, but really his wife works him. He's terribly unhappy in his marriage. And his only enjoyment of life is when he's done working the farm, at the end of the day, he goes to the local pub gets drunk, and talks to his buddies about politics. Huh, that's, that's hard to imagine, right? Then one day, he decides to go on a squirrel hunt. So he grabs his dog, and he grabs his rifle, and he goes into the woods for a, a squirrel hunt, and he's going through the woods, and he comes along a, a bunch of dwarves. And the dwarves are singing and dancing, and they're drinking beer, and they offer him a drink. And so he takes the drink, he drinks the drink, and he gets sleepy. And so he lays down, takes a little nap, and when he wakes up, his dog is gone. His rifle is rusty, and he has a beard that's about two feet long and gray. And so he stumbles back into town, and he notices town is similar, it's just different. But then he finds out that most of his friends have died. He learns he's 20 years older. He learns his wife has died. That didn't really bother him all that much. You see, he just slept through this huge portion of life while the world changed around him. The story of Rip Van Winkle sounds a lot like far too many Christians to me. They're in a definite state of inactivity. They have this loss of consciousness, this decreased responsiveness to what's really happening around them. They're just sleeping their life away as the world goes on around them. Someone said years ago, quote, some people make things happen, some people watch things happening, and most people don't know what's happening. They're spiritual Rip Van Winkles just sleeping through it all. But Paul said, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
Again, we are closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been before. We are closer to the end of the church age. It's time for us to live the life that Christ has called us to live. Stop living in darkness. Stop living in light. Paul said this to the church in in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8. Paul said, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's what Paul said. He told the church, you used to live like that. Don't live like that anymore. This is how the apostle John said it in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. He said, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. Picture, if you will, there's a soldier. And this is a soldier during World War II, and he's in Western Europe. He's on the battlefield. And then there's a little lull in the battle. He decides to leave the battlefield and go take a little personal R&R in one of the, the nearby towns. And he finds himself a pub, and he drinks himself into a stupor and a wild night of partying with some of the local girls, and he does this night after night after night after night. Until one day he realizes he's not even wearing his uniform anymore. And he realizes that he, he smells about as bad as he looks. What should he do? Can you imagine a scene like that? I think the Apostle Paul can. Look what he says in Romans chapter 13, verse 13. Paul says, let us walk properly. As in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. Here's my second principle for today. Principle number two, stop living a life that hurts your witness. Remember, Paul is writing to believers here. And he's trying to get this, this scene across from him. He says, let us walk properly, upright, straight, not stumbling around like a drunken idiot. That's what he's saying. Let me ask you a question. What would you say of a man that is fully capable of working, but rather than working, he just goes to the bar and gets drunk night after night after night and totally ignores his obligations? I know what you're thinking. You'd be thinking, not much of a man, right? That's the picture that Paul is painting here. Paul says not in orgies. This is written in Greek. In the Greek, the word for that word is komos. It means nighttime riotous parties. It means exactly what you think it means. And and then he says not in drunkenness. You want to know how to say drunkenness in Greek? Methe. Interesting, right? Drunkenness is methe in Greek. So according to Paul, who's inspired by God, stop the nighttime riotous parties and lay off the methe. Then Paul says, not in sexual immorality. The Greek word is kote. It means a bed. It's literally bed is what he's saying. Paul is saying, stop going to the forbidden bed. Stop the adultery. Stop the fornication. Isn't that exactly how the unsaved world lives? Isn't that exactly what what non-believers, how they live their life? And remember, Paul's writing to Christians. Let me translate what Paul just said in in terms in 2022 that we'd understand. Stop living your life in the hookup scene. You know, years ago, if somebody's involved in a sexual relationship with somebody outside the confines of marriage, we would say they're having sex outside of marriage, right? And then years later, it kind of, it got loosened, it lightened up, and it said that they're sleeping together. Nobody was sleeping together. 
There was no sleeping going on, right? But today is called hooking up. It's more graphic, but at least it's being honest, right? But can you see how our terminology is kind of lightened up over the years? It's no big deal. They're just hooking up. Paul says, put away sensuality. The word there, it means filthy, wantonness. It brings the idea of lustful greed. It's, it's like a, a person that has a near animal appetite with sheer self-indulgence and a passion for the flesh with no shame, no remorse, and no decency. In other books of the Bible, the Bible uses a phrase that's, that says, don't have the forehead of a prostitute. That's a very graphic scene because... A prostitute, because the life they live it, you lose the ability to blush, right? Just sitting here, I think most of us are probably squirming in our seats that Pastor John is actually breaking down these words. But for some people, even Christians, they have the forehead of a prostitute because they live a life that's totally void of morals. And in our world, if you stop the average person and said, hey, I've got a question for you. This is a fun question I've got. When does a boy become a man? How would we answer that question? I think many people, maybe not here, but some people would say, oh, it's when he can drive a car. Oh, a boy becomes a man when he can legally purchase and drink alcohol. Oh, he becomes a man when he loses his virginity. Again, I know we wouldn't answer that question like that, but functionally, that's how our world would answer that question. One of my all-time favorite books is a book titled Raising a Modern Day Knight. It's by a guy named Robert Lewis. And this is a book to Christian dads that are trying to answer that question. And here's how Lewis answers that question. He says, a boy becomes a man when one, he rejects passivity. He's actively pursuing social and spiritual responsibilities. And the other side of the coin is to accept responsibility. So you have to reject passivity. You have to accept responsibility for God's work, for God's will, and for God's woman. Your life has to be about something greater than you. That's what he's saying. And then third thing, you have to lead courageously. Lead courageously over feelings because what we want to do, we want to lead with our feelings. Don't do that. You become a man when you put that stuff away and you lead the way God said to. And the fourth way is when you expect greater reward. God's reward. Not what this world has to offer. Not in the accolades of this, that, and the other thing. In, in pleasing God. That's when you become a man. Paul mentions two other characteristics that a believer is to stay away from. Quarreling and jealousy. I think what's going on here, he's painting two opposite peoples. He's got the person that is totally caught up in sexual escapades. And there's this other person that's all about quarreling and jealousy. This is a person who's constantly fighting. They have this desire for power and prestige or position. This is a person that has an unwillingness to, to take second place. This is a lack of humility. This is an idea of someone who refuses to be a servant. This is a person who is a narcissist, and they want to make sure that everybody knows that the whole world revolves around them. And remember, Paul's writing to believers here. These two extreme people. Maybe the first person, they're totally worshiping themselves through sex and drunken orgies. And the second person would not participate in, in those things. But yet they still want the world to revolve around themselves, right? Let me ask you, who do you think is behind all this? Who's behind trying to convince the, the Christian to motivate, to, to live their life in sexual escapades or 
just a total depravity of narcissism. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul said, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. Can you hear that's all of us? We all used to live like that, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying the devil inspired you to do that. You don't have to live like that anymore. So Paul was reminding the church in Ephesus that at least one time they were controlled by the devil, and now he's reminding the church of Rome the same thing. Let me ask you a question. If the Apostle Paul was to write a letter to Crosspoint, what would be his warning? I'll leave that to you. At the end of verse 12, Paul says, put on armor of light. And then in verse 13, he says, let us walk properly in the daytime. I'll say it like this, soldier, put on your uniform, stand up straight, and look like a soldier. You're going into battle, and you don't look like a soldier. You're not walking like a soldier. You're not acting like a soldier. You're a sitting duck. I read about a situation that happened years ago. It happened in Canada. And it was fall time, and there was this warm front that blasted into these fruit trees. And the fruit got real ripe real fast, and they fell to the ground, and they fermented. And all these birds swooped in, thousands of them. They ate all the fruit, only now they're drunken birds. And then right behind the warm front came a cold front. So the birds instinctively knew they had to fly south. The only problem is they're too drunk to fly. And so they're trying to fly, but yet they're crashing into cars. They're crashing into houses. And they're, they're breaking windshields. It was a terrible scene of dead birds and wrecked cars and wrecked homes all over the countryside. Sounds like the life of too many Christians to me. Instead of looking like and acting like Christians are supposed to look like, we're too busy getting drunk and living our lives for ourselves. And when we're finally called to do what we're called to do, we're not capable of doing it. Last verse, verse 13 for us this morning. Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify the desire. Here's the third principle take this life seriously. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul famously tells Christians to put on the whole armor of God. He's saying, you're going into battle, Christian. It's time to put on your armor. He says, put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the shoes of, of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. You're going into battle. Take it seriously. Imagine, if you will, it's the... NCAA National Championship football. The two best teams, they're, they're going at it for, for who's going to be the champion. But the night before, one of the star players won the teams, he goes out and he gets plastered drunk. So at game time, he comes out on the field, he doesn't have his helmet on. What happens? Well, let me tell you, any coach worth his salt is going to tackle that guy and put him on the sideline and not let him come out because you can get killed in that situation, Right? I think that's what Paul is saying here. He cares too much for the believers he's writing to. He knows that they don't change their lifestyle. They're not only going to be ineffective, but they could get killed in the process. 
So Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He means, he means be like him. Put him on. Let him clothe you positionally. Let him clothe you in justification. Let him clothe you in practical, practical sanctification is what Paul is saying. I'll say it like this. Your whole life, you need to be becoming more like Jesus. Paul said, but one thing I do, this is in other books of the Bible, Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. And I press on towards the goal and the prize of upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul, when he writes that, I mean, he's done so much for the gospel, yet he says, I still want to be more like Jesus. And we're near today to the return of Christ in the history of time. How near? Only God knows. But this is not time for to be fooling around with the sins of the world. It's time for Christians to set that stuff aside, figure out what's truly important, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, make no provisions for the flesh to gratify his desire. Don't give in to your flesh, Christian. Let me ask you, do you have a reoccurring sin that you struggle with? Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's some form of addiction. Maybe for you it's spending money where you shouldn't be wasting your money on. You have something. What is it? Keep it to yourself. Whatever it is, that must be defeated. Paul says, make no provision for it. This is not the time to indulge ourselves in whatever our sinful self desires. It's time for serious living. The time of the dawn is coming. And by dawn, Paul's talking about when the world's going to be judged. I read a story about Augustine. If you don't know who he is, he was an early church thinker, philosopher. And there was a time in his life where he was in great despair. He was in great despair because he wanted to live a Christian life, but he just couldn't do it. And he kept crying out to God. He's like, what's wrong with me? I can't live the way I'm supposed to live. And he's racking his mind trying to find a solution to his, to his dilemma. Then one day he finally goes to his, a friend by the name of Olympus. And the story goes that Olympus is sitting there and he's reading something. It happened to be from the Apostle Paul. And he's just reading it. And, um, and, and, and Augustine walked up to his friend, ripped out what he had in his hand, and began to read it. And he read this, quote, let us, not, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desire. And the story goes that with that, Augustine put his finger in the book and just closed it. And said, quote, I neither wished nor needed to read further. With the end of that sentence, as though the light of assurance had poured into my heart, all shades of doubt were scattered. I put my finger in the page and I closed the book. Maybe you're a Christian that needs to take that sentence to heart. You need to begin to live your life like Paul is commanding us to live. Let me say, before you even have the chance to live like that, you have to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have to recognize that you're a sinner. We're all sinners. And all of us, our sin separates us from, from, from God. But God loves us so much that He came to us. See, all of religion is us trying to get to God. Oh, I'm going to church, I'm paying some money, I'm being a nice person, I'm doing all this good stuff. It's never going to get us to God. The Bible says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to the eyes of God. 
How many filthy rags do I need to make up for my, my past sin? The truth is, it's never going to work. I can never get to God on my own. What I need, I need God to come to me. And there was a day when God came. We celebrate every year. It's called Christmas. The year when God became a man. And then we celebrate this thing called Good Friday. It's where God was tortured on a cross and died in my place for my sins. And three days later, he rose from the grave. It's called Easter. The Bible has this beautiful promise that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I'd encourage you to do that now. To recognize your sinfulness, but then just call on Jesus. It goes something like this. Say, dear God, I'm a sinner. My sin, it separates me from you, but you love me so much that you went to the cross. The nails in your wrist, it should have been me. The nails in your feet, it should have been me. But Lord, it was you and you paid for my sins. I place my faith in you and you alone. Save me from my sins. I give you my life and I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.